0: Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I did a lot of foundational uh, setup um, last week, and and we then got into these verses a little bit. And tonight, I'm going to do a lot more foundational setup, and we'll get into these verses a little bit. For those who have been part of the study, you know, if you're in a hurry, this is the wrong Bible study, because we're going to be going through it and dig and dig. There's so much cool stuff here. Matthew chapter five, verses one through 12. seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor and pure in heart, for they shall see God." Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So, for, so they persecuted the prophets who also were before you. Now as we dig deeper into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount tonight, it's going to help us to remember the predominant attitudes that the Jews and especially their religious leaders and teachers had at the time of this message. You see, they believed in the prophecies about a coming kingdom in Israel under the rule of a son of David or descendant of David in which they would be blessed and not removed from their land ever again. They knew that there were prophecies about that. Put a bookmark here in Matthew five and go with me back to 2 Samuel chapter seven. And 2 Samuel chapter seven, look at verses eight through 13. God speaking through the prophet Nathan to, Samuel, uh, sorry, to David, and he says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them... So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, let me ask you real quickly. Have the Jews been planted in the land, never to be bothered ever again? Not yet. This prophecy is still yet to be fulfilled. And the king who's coming did come the first time, as we know, to die and be the savior of the world. And he's the one who's preaching this message. Jesus is the son of David he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, but this coming set to set up the kingdom is still to come. And the Jews knew that all through the scriptures, I could spend the whole rest of the hour showing you the prophecies that talked about the fact that there's going to be a coming kingdom on the earth centered in Israel with the Messiah ruling and reigning forever. The Jews knew when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount about the coming kingdom of God, they knew that there was a proph- prophecies about a coming kingdom, that they understood. And they knew that they would be in the land and never to be removed again. But many of them thought that since the promises were to Abraham and his descendants, all they had to do to enter the kingdom was just be a descendant of Abraham. Go with me real quickly to Genesis chapter 17. In other words, they just simply thought since the promise was to Abraham and all his descendants, if they were Jews or descendants of Abraham, they were in. In Genesis chapter 17, look at verses 1 through 8. Look at what God promised Abraham. It says, When Abram was ninety nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. In this promise, prophecy, in this promise from God, he's promised to make him a what? A father of a multitude of nations. See, the Jews didn't understand that the kingdom wasn't just for the nation of Israel, as we've already talked about last time we were together. Go to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, look at verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, which is God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." Yes, God promised Abraham that his descendants would get that land, but He also said, I'm going to make you father of a multitude of nations. And even here in Daniel, it clearly says that this coming king who's going to be on the earth is going to be ruling over a multitude of nations. See, the Jews thought that the kingdom was only for them. And they also thought that all they had to do to enter the kingdom was just be Jewish. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Here in the preaching of John the Baptist as he was setting the stage for the coming Messiah, in Matthew chapter 3, look at verses 7-10. through 10. It says in Matthew 3, verse 7, When John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, well, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones... Children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He said to them, Don't think you're okay because you're descendants of Abraham. God's able to raise up children from Abraham from these rocks if He wants to. And actually, judgment's coming on you. And if you just think, Well, I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm in, (laughs) that's not how it works. By the way, do you get into the kingdom just because you're a descendant of Abraham? No, but actually I'm going to show you, yes. Stick with me, stick with me, but it's not in the way that you think. It's not in the way that you think. Again, God can raise up descendants of Abraham from the stones if he wanted to. All right, keep that in mind. Also, others taught and believed that entry and prominence in the kingdom of God was tied to their own righteousness, Therefore, they jockeyed for position in the kingdom by comparing their righteousness to others around them. Remember James and John saying, who's going to sit on your right? Who's going to sit at your left in the kingdom? The Jewish mindset was that if you were a Jew, you're already in the kingdom. But if you want a good spot in the kingdom, you had to be more righteous than somebody else. And they would jockey for position on who was the greatest in the kingdom. Go to Luke chapter 18. Look at verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, and again, in the mindset of the Jews, you've already got the righteous person, the Pharisee, and the tax collector who's not righteous. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That story had to blow their minds because in their minds, the ones who are obviously going into the kingdom and going to be leaders in the kingdom were the Pharisees and everything. And, and they're just glad to be in the kingdom because they were Jews, but they tried to be righteous. And because of however much righteousness I can produce, that will determine my status in the kingdom to come, this everlasting kingdom. So you got to keep in mind, Jesus's sermon is going to be pointing out that not only the perfectly righteous, as we looked at last week, can, the, only the perfectly righteous can enter the kingdom and no one has that righteousness within themselves, as we're going to see as we dive into this three-chapter sermon, by the way, that entry into this kingdom to come is not only for the Jews, but also for all who would humble themselves and acknowledge their sin and turn to God for His forgiveness and His righteousness provided for us through the only way into the kingdom, which is through faith in His Son, the Messiah, Jesus. So that's what we're going to want you to see. As we start to get into the Sermon on the Mount, We've got to keep in mind, he was preaching to a group of people who thought that, first off, it was only for the Jews, which the Bible doesn't teach. Second off, they thought that they were automatically in because they were Jews. And he says, don't think that you're OK because you're Jewish. That's not how it works. And they also thought that they would get in because of their own righteousness. All that he's about to blow up in this whole sermon. And so have you ever heard someone say something, but you didn't hear the context of what they said? And you could easily think, I can't believe they said that. And you would misinterpret what they said because you didn't know the context. Knowing the context would totally change your interpretation of what they said, correct? I think too many people come to the Sermon on the Mount and just try to start reading Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. And they try to interpret his teaching without looking at the context of who he was talking to, what he was dealing with, what was the prevailing attitude, and what was he trying to say? And when you understand the context of what Jesus was dealing with, all of a sudden interpreting the Sermon on the Mount is going to become so clear. So before we get into the Sermon on the Mount, I want to take you to Romans chapter 4 and show you that those who enter the kingdom are only the descendants of Abraham. You say, wait a minute, I thought you said that they couldn't just rest in that. Well, let's let the scripture speak for itself. Go to Romans chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. Paul asked this question. He said, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? In other words, what did he do in his own strength? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says, and by the way, they quoting Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Some of your translations say credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, here's the question. Is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It wasn't after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, Paul's laying out that when God credited to him his righteousness and gave him righteousness, it was because he had faith in what God had promised. That was before he was circumcised. That was in chapter 15. It wasn't until chapter 17 that he circumcised. And so he's saying, did he get faith, give his righteousness after he circumcised or before? And it was, the answer was before. And he said, this actually is so that God would understand, help us understand that this being a descendant of Abraham is for all who aren't circumcised. Not in the sense of what way we do it today, but in the sense of whether or not you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, because it was by faith. Oh, and just because you've been circumcised or you're a Jew, if you don't walk in faith like Abraham did, your circumcision doesn't count you for anything. You being a Jew doesn't, doesn't help. It gets even more clear. Keep reading. Keep reading in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham. Who is the father of us all? As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Where was that? Where did we read that? That was Genesis 17. I made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope... He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So let me explain. The Jews thought that just because they were Jews and descendants of Abraham genetically, they were in. Jesus said, that isn't what gets you in. Only the true descendants of Abraham are going to be the ones who get in. And the true descendants of Abraham aren't just gonna be the Jews, but also the multitude of nations, because they've made you a father of many nations. And by the way, how do we become a descendant of Abraham? Through faith in God's promise, which is Jesus Christ. And if you're a Jew, you're a descendant of Abraham only if you have faith. Don't think we have Abraham as our father. He says, God's able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Don't think you're okay. But don't think you've missed out on all these promises because you're not Jewish. God's made the promises to everybody. The kingdom is for everybody. And Jesus, as he goes through this sermon, is going to be laying this all out. He's going to be blowing up this whole mindset of the fact that they think that they're in because of their righteousness. No, it's not by righteousness of yours. It's, you have to have perfect righteousness, and it has to be by faith in God's provision for your sin. Blessed is the one who God doesn't count his sin. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Now, before we break down the specifics of the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse, I need to deal with one more thing. I kind of hinted at it a little bit, but I need to deal with it because it's a problem in the Christian church. Go to Luke chapter 20 and look at verses 9 through 8. Again, we are laying the foundation that will help us have the context to be able to properly interpret the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke chapter 20... Look at verses 9 through 18. This is near the end of Jesus' ministry on the earth before he goes to the cross. And he began to tell the people this parable. Jesus said, a man planted a vineyard and he let it out to tenants and he went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully. And he sent him away and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. One of the other gospel accounts said that when Jesus finished telling this parable, the Pharisees knew they were talking about them and the Jews. He said he was using this illustration of how he had given the nation of Israel this, this heritage, if you will, this vineyard. They'd given him the land and these promises, and he went away for a while, and then, but he sent his servants to go collect what he was wanting from them, and they beat all the prophets. So then he said, I'll send my son. And he said, you're going to kill the son. And what's he going to do after you kill his son? He'll take that vineyard, cast him out of it, and give it to others. And there is a predominant teaching now in Christendom that the kingdom of God is for the church now. All the nations that are believing. Yeah, there are Jews who can be a part of the kingdom, but only because they're in the church. That the kingdom is now for the church, and the kingdom is being realized in the church, and that God is done with the nation of Israel as a nation. And there are many denominations that actually are pro-Palestine. Because of their hatred for Israel. Because of their interpretation of the Bible and their interpretation of the kingdom of God and what it means. And so I think we need to have a fuller understanding. Here's the question. Since the Jews rejected Jesus and since Jesus himself said that God would give the vineyard to others because of their killing of his son, is the kingdom no longer promised to the Jews? Is it just for these multitude of nations, Jew and Gentile, who come to faith? Or is the kingdom no longer still offered to the Jews? Yes, but we're going to lay this all out. So What she said was, individually to the Jews now, they're they're being offered the kingdom. But as a nation, at the end of the tribulation period, it'll be offered to the whole nation. Those that survived the tribulation period, when we've already looked at all Israel will be saved. Go to Romans chapter 11. I was having this conversation with a pastor a couple years ago. And he didn't fully understand the kingdom and all this and wasn't sure about whether or not it was for the Jews anymore and all this stuff. And I said, what about Romans chapter 11? It's so clear. It's the most simple, understandable chapter when it deals with this whole topic. This is what he said to me. He goes, you're the first pastor that's ever said that Romans 11 was clear. Well, you don't have to go to seminary. Read it with me. Yeah, well, you know the headings aren't inspired, but even the guy that wrote the heading got it. I ask then, Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant of Israelites chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, here's the second time he asked the question, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles So as to make Israel jealous. By the way, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, God said to the nation of Israel, you're going to make me jealous by going after gods that aren't gods. I'm going to make you jealous by taking a people you don't consider a people. And you're going to become jealous. I'm going to use them to make you jealous. Now, if there, the Jews trespass means riches for the world. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, in the next verses, which we're going to skip over, he pretty much says to the Gentiles don't think you're better than them. Don't think it's about you now and not about them. Because if he cut them off so that you could be grafted in, he's able to graft them back in again very easily because you're a wild olive shoot and they're a natural. It'll be easier for him to bring them back, and he's going to. Don't think you're better than them. But look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved As it is written, the deliverer will come from where? Zion. He will banish ungodliness from who? Jacob, which is Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they Have now been disobedient in order by that the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. The kingdom is for everyone, it's not just for the Jews. But you only enter the kingdom by faith. It's not in your righteousness, because you're gonna see in this sermon, you have to have perfect righteousness to enter the kingdom. On top of that, you enter the kingdom not because you're Jewish, but because you have faith. But does that mean that God's done with Israel? By no means. Now, let me say something real quickly, just as a little aside. Had a conversation with somebody last week afterwards, and they were asking about, you know, when we think the rapture is gonna occur, and some people I think it might be on the Feast of Trumpets, and there's a possibility in all this stuff. But this one preacher that, uh, and teacher that I respect, he made this comment. He said he doesn't think it's a day-specific event, the rapture, as much as it's a number-specific event. And what, I, what he means by this? We keep thinking, well, on what day might he come back? The Bible says that, that when he's done with the Gentiles, then he'll finish what he started with Israel. So the answer is whenever the last Gentile that's gonna be saved is saved, that's when God's gonna rapture the church. So we don't have to worry about trying to figure out what day it might be. Keep sharing the gospel, folks. <laughs> keep sharing the gospel, because when the last Gentile's saved, that he's gonna save, then he's gonna finish what he started with Israel. And the kingdom will be offered again to Israel. Oh, and by the way, how do they enter the kingdom? By faith, by faith alone. Now, before I break down the Sermon on the Mount, I know you said, Jim, you've been promising that for two weeks. I want to show you some passages in the Old Testament that I think hint at and speak of the humble brokenness and a confessing of their sin and a turning to God of the nation of Israel in the last days. I've run across some passages that I think Show what the Jews are going to actually be saying when they turn to him, and when you see him, it's pretty cool. Go to Psalm 106. Look at—I'm going to read the whole chapter to you, but it's just such a cool chapter. Psalm 106. By the way? Remember Jesus said everything written about me in the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Look at Psalm 106. It says, Praise to the Lord. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when You show favor to Your people. Help me when You save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of Your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of Your nation that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet He saved them for His name's sake, that He might make known His mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry, and He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged for the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. It would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. Remember from our study of Ezekiel, Phinehas, and the promises that came to his descendants. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. And he gave them into the hand of the nation so that he Those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times He delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry. For their sake He remembered His covenant and relented according to the abundance of His steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Has that happened yet? It's About to. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and in your, in your glor- glory and your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Can you imagine the nation of Israel when they're turning to him in faith at the end of the tribulation period, reading this psalm as it recounts their whole history? We and our fathers have sinned. Yet, because of your steadfast love and you had a right to wipe us out all along, you never did. Because of your promises to the forefathers and those who stood in the breach and reminded you of your promises. Save us. I believe without question this prophecy is going to be read by the Jews when they come to the realization that they were sinners and they were worthy of everything that's happened to them. But when he saves them from all the nations that are going to be destroying them in the end, they're going to turn to him. Go to Jeremiah chapter 14. Look at verses 17 through 22. You shall say to them this word, Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound, with a very grievous blow. If I go out into the field, behold those pierced by the sword. And if I enter the city, behold the diseases of famine. For both prophet and priest ply their trade throughout the land, and have no knowledge. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Again, you see the nation of Israel, when things are going to get real bad, finally saying, we have sinned. Not just our fathers have sinned. We have sinned. Go to Daniel chapter 9. I'm just going to skim through this because of the power of what he says here. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ezra Harris, by by descent Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass, for the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Here he remembers the prophecy that Jeremiah had said that they would be in captivity in, in Babylon for 70 years. He realizes it's getting close to that time, so he starts to pray. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him, and keep His commandments. Look at what Daniel says, we Have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments. Look at verse 6. We have not listened to your servants. Look at verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. All the way through, if you were to keep reading, I could show you verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law. Uh, Near the end of verse 11, we have sinned against him. You go down to verse uh, 14, the middle to the end of verse 14. We have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself as, as is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all Your righteous acts, let Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city, Jerusalem, Your holy hill, Because for our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword. So Daniel, in the time that he was, praying, we've sinned, our nation has sinned. You promised that you'd set us free from Babylon after 70 years, according to Jeremiah's prophecy. We would like to be set free. We have sinned. If you know the rest of the story, when he was finished, look at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel... And presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, that's Jerusalem. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, he came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision." Seventy weeks or seventy sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Now, we're not going to read any more, but Daniel realizes that the prophecy said that they would get out of their captivity in Babylon after 70 years. He's done the math. He realizes it's getting close. He starts to pray for the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel, confessing his sin and the sin of his people. God sends angel Gabriel to him and says, I've got an answer for your prayer. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people. Seventy seven year periods, that's 490 years are decreed for your people to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to anoint a most holy place. By the way, has sin hadn't put an end to yet? Has everlasting righteousness been brought in as it said? No. And then he goes on and we don't have time to break down the rest of this prophecy. You can go to my revelation teaching. I go into that in great detail when I cover that. But in this prophecy, God tells Daniel from the time, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there's going to be 49 years. And then from that time, there's going to be 434 years until the anointed one, the holy one, the Messiah comes in. And by the way, the prophecy was fulfilled to the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. But then the Bible says, but he'll be cut off. And there's this break. There's one seven-year period left. If you do the math, that's not 490 years. That's 400 and what? 490 minus 7. 483. I'm just making sure you're awake still here. I wasn't testing your math. I was asking for help with mine. So what happens is this. They've been put on hold. Remember what what Paul said? Israel has received a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved. What's the Israel that survives the tribulation period? That one last seven year period we know is the tribulation period. God's going to finish what he started. And at the end of that... There's gonna be an end to sin and there's gonna be everlasting righteousness and all this stuff. It's still to come. It's still to come. Look at Zechariah chapter 12. But this came about, this insight, when Daniel was confessing his sin and the sin of his people. As you're gonna see in our study, we are gonna get into the Sermon on the Mount. That is a kingdom attitude. That is a kingdom mindset. Zechariah chapter 12, look at verses 10 through 14. God says, and I'm going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, The mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. At the end of the tribulation period, they're going to look on him whom they pierced, and they're going to mourn. And I believe they're going to call out. I actually could show you we don't have time. I think the prophecies even hint at the fact that for three days, the Jews are going to be reading and quoting and claiming Isaiah 53. He was beaten and bruised for our iniquities, for our sins. He was put to death. Is God done with the nation of Israel? No. Is the kingdom only for Israel? No. The kingdom's for all who would believe in God's provision for their sin, and it's entered into by faith. But as much as it was offered to the Jews first and then the Gentiles, when his time in this church age has come to an end, he's going to finish that last seven year of the prophecy. And all Israel, who survives the tribulation period, because two-thirds of them are going to be killed according to the prophecies, all of them will know the Lord. Kind of cool, isn't it? Go ahead, Alan. Are you saying that no Gentiles will enter the kingdom of God during that tribulation period? Oh, not at all. The Bible is very clear in Romans, uh, sorry, Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 14 that during the uh, tribulation period, the 144,000 Jews are going to be going out, 12,000 Jewish men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel are going to go out as witnesses throughout the tribulation period. And because of their preaching, Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 show us that there's going to be all these that get saved during the tribulation period from every nation, language, and people. So, no, they won't just be preaching to the Jews during that time. Many Gentiles will be saved during that time. But you have to keep in mind God's dispensations. When he's talking about the last Gentile, he's talking about the church age. And then he'll finish what he started with Israel and everything. So I lean toward the fact that, that there's the time of the Gentiles and the, the number of the Gentiles, and I think there's a difference. You know, Because the time of the Gentiles goes through almost to the end of the tribulation period because the Antichrist is going to be ruling and reigning in Jerusalem during all that time. So, all right. I understand your question. I, I believe without question during the tribulation period many Gentiles will be saved. The Bible is very clear about that. In spite of that phrase, the full number of the Gentiles. But again, remember because of the fact it will have been put on hold until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. I think personally that that's not just referring to the tribulation people. Also, I think it's talking about the church age. I may be wrong, but it's very clear either way that at the end of the tribulation period is when God saves Israel, the Jews that are left. All of, all of Israel that is left, yes. I, it doesn't mean, it's very obvious, there are Jews who are gonna be in hell and are in hell and won't get out. So yes. All right, now, with all that as a foundation, let's take a look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. How about that? Go back to Matthew chapter 5. took me an hour and a half to lay foundation, but I felt it was necessary. Now remember the brokenness and the humble confessing of sin and the repentance that is needed to enter the kingdom. Jesus opens his mouth in verse 2, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now keep in mind, when Matthew says kingdom of heaven, is he talking about the kingdom of heaven, heaven, or is he talking about the kingdom of God? It's the kingdom of God. We've already laid that all out. That's caused a lot of problems because Matthew wouldn't use the word God because it was Jewish hearers. They wouldn't say God. So he calls it the kingdom of heaven, but it's talking about the kingdom of God that's going to be on the earth. And he opened his mouth and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Again, remember the brokenness and the humble confessing of sin and repentance needed to enter the kingdom. Remember? Only those who repent are able to enter the kingdom. Those who acknowledge their sin and ask for help. See, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. By the way, I'll put it to you this way. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. By the way, um, who's spiritually bankrupt? Hope you understand the answers, everybody. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. I love how he had to clarify it just in case somebody would try to, no, no, not one. No one understands. No one even seeks for God. Now, these passages that I'm about to read are all quotes from the Old Testament. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery... And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. By the way, if you want to have a fun study, go and use your study Bibles to find those passages that he's quoting from in the Old Testament and go find the context of them. It's pretty cool. But he quotes from all these different places showing man's wickedness. Now, look at what it says following. uh, So we'll we'll come back to that later on. Right now we see that there is no one righteous. Now, some will say, I'll admit I'm a sinner, but I'm not really that bad. There are people worse than me. Have you ever heard people talk like that? All in the world today, everybody's like, no, I'll admit I've done a few things, but I'm not that bad. Oh, go to Romans chapter three and look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that what? Every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. All right. This is for everybody. Go to James chapter 2 and look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Don't miss that. If you're able to keep the whole law of God, but just stumble at one little point. The Bible says you're guilty before God as if you broke it all. Does anybody understand why? Does anybody know why? We've touched on it a little bit in our study. Remember, God said that only the righteous will inherit the kingdom, but only the perfectly righteous. Remember, if you're, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember, he said, be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. Remember, if you're going to try to be getting into heaven or getting into the kingdom of God, which is coming onto this earth by how good you are, and you're going to use that as your measurement. In other words, you're going to try to keep God's law and you're going to do a pretty good job. No, if you're going to be judged by the law, you have to get a 100%. You can't get a 99. The only passing grade is a 100. So if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, You got a zero, because a 99 is not a good grade. You have to get 100, or it's a zero. You understand? So when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, everybody's poor in spirit. So what he's really saying is, blessed are those who realize their sin. Now, you say, well, how do you mean? Go with me to Luke chapter 7. Now, I'm going to talk to some Christians tonight in this passage as well. Go to Luke chapter 7. Look at verses 36 through 50. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man really were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. And I, and that's, I love that. Here's this guy thinking horrible thoughts about Jesus. Jesus, I got something to say to you. Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other only 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water from my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. When you didn't anoint my head with oil, and she has anointed my feet with the ointment, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus said, he's been forgiven little, loves little. We just all agreed that there's no one that's been forgiven more than anybody else. Because if, even if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty in the eyes of God as if you broke it all. Right? So why was Jesus saying who forgives little, sorry, love, forgive, been forgiven little, loves little, when there haven't been those who've been forgiven more than anybody else? Exactly. Your realization of your depravity will determine how much you love. Folks, let me tell you, having been a pastor for many, many years and dealing with, I'm just going to say it nicely. I didn't even use the word Christians. I just said church people. I, I really start to wonder how many of us really understand the depth of the sin that God forgave us. Some of you were saved at six years old or eight years old. And, you know, for the most part, you've walked the Lord. You might have done a few things. But for the most part, you haven't really done that much. I don't think many of us really understand our condition when Jesus saved us. I think many of us still have this tendency to look at those around us and think, well, I'm, I'm still better than them. We look at the world and the way that they're acting and we think, oh, man, they're so wicked. Folks, you don't understand if it wasn't for Christ, you probably would be there yourself. I'm not gonna ask you to confess anything tonight, but I'm gonna just tell, well, actually, I want you to confess it between you and God. I just don't want to hear about it because I, I wanna be able to look at you. But think about some of the stuff, think about some of the stuff you still do even after you're saved. Think about some of the things you still struggle with in your thought process, even though you're saved. Aren't you glad you're saved? Can you even imagine where you'd be right now if you didn't have the Spirit of God within you convicting? guiding folks it's time for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount it's for us blessed are those who understand they're spiritually bankrupt I got no righteousness in and of myself folks I'm spiritually poor Blessed are those who realize how poor in spirit we are. Oh, by the way, you're going to notice this back in the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of each blessed is, there's good news. I put in my notes. Good news for those who are poor in spirit. By the way, that's all of us. But those of us who realize they're poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Don't miss that. The kingdom of God was created for people like you. The kingdom of God isn't for those church people. The kingdom of God is for sinners. Because the only way into the kingdom of God is through faith in Jesus, who came and lived the sinless life, was crucified on our behalf, rose from the dead, and will give righteousness to all who would ever believe in him. If God set it up, the entrance into the kingdom was through faith in his son, who died for your sins. The only way you can get into the kingdom is be a sinner. Blessed are those who realize they're sinners. The kingdom was made for you. Oh, by the way, that means those people that you run into in this world. The kingdom was made for them. The kingdom was made for them. It's time the church maybe realized for the first time. That they were guilty of every single sin when Jesus saved them. The more you understand that, the more you'll love We're all made in the image of God. We uh, got to remember. Yeah. Blessed are those who mourn. When we truly understand our lostness and the depth of our sin, we should grieve. Now, listen closely. I'm going to hit this fast. This is the last one we're going to cover tonight. When we truly understand our lostness and the depth of our sin, we're going to grieve. Or we should grieve both before and after salvation. Go to Luke chapter 5. Actually, I'm not going to have you turn there for the sake of time. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Remember when Jesus reveals his glory to Peter, and Peter, because he didn't believe they were going to be able to catch any fish, they fished all night and haven't caught anything, and Jesus does that miracle. What is is Peter's reaction? He falls on his knees and says, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. In Isaiah chapter 6, again, for the sake of time, I'm just going to quote it to you. You can turn in there and look at it for yourself. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, Isaiah sees the Lord. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and when he spoke, the threshold shook And what was his reaction? He fell on his face and said, woe unto me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I've seen the Lord of glory and live among a people of unclean lips. His first reaction when he understood his sinfulness and the holiness of God was to be grieved over his situation. True kingdom people are never comfortable with their sin. Blessed are those not only who are poor in spirit, who realize their lostness. Blessed are those who it grieves them because of their wickedness. Now, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for the sake of time, because I don't want to skip over this too fast. I'm just going to say a couple of things. We'll come back to this. Blessed are those who mourn next time we get together, because I don't want there's too much here. I don't want to skip it too fast. But didn't Paul say that same thing in Romans 7 when he struggled with his sin? When he talked about his life after salvation, he said, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't. And what does he say? It's all right. God's forgiven me. I'm good. No, he said, oh, who will save me from this body of death? Folks, let me just leave this to you for now, and we'll come back and deal with it in much more detail when we come back next week. True kingdom people not only realize the depth of their lostness, true kingdom people are grieved over their sin, not only before in order to be saved, but also after. I'm going to show you passages that talk to New Testament believers and talk about how we shouldn't be okay with some of the stuff that's happening in our churches the way we are. There are things happening in our churches that we should be grieved over, and we act like, well, that's just part of how church works. I'm going to deal with that in great detail when we come back. I don't want to skim over it because I really think we need to hear it. So for now, we're going to stop. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.